Welcome to episode 27 of Revelation and Idealist Interpretation. I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church and producer of this series. In this episode, the focus is on chapter 22, the River of Life and Tree of Life, the final chapter of the final act in the divine drama that is the second half of Revelation. St. John's perspective continues where he was at the end of chapter 21, that is, on earth looking to heaven. The illustration for all the slides in this episode is Folio 57, The River of Life, from the Bamberg Apocalypse. The first of four readings is verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What we hear in verses 1 through 5 is among the most poetic uh, wording or metaphorical wording in all of Revelation. In just five verses, there are seven allusions to important Old Testament images that have been incorporated into traditional Christian theology, the water of life, the heavenly throne as a source of power and grace, the tree of life, that there is no more curse, the right to place names on foreheads, the new privilege of seeing the face of God, and the image of God as light. In verse 1a, the water of life mentioned in Revelation 7, verses 17 and 18 as fountains of water, and in Revelation 21, 6 as the fountain of the water of life, now runs abundantly as a, quote, pure river of life, clear as crystal and flowing from the divine throne. In the Holy Land at the time of Christ, and as it still is today, Water and or access to water was and is among any family's most valuable assets. Water was used for cleansing rituals and in the Christian era for baptisms. The words pure and clear as crystal add emphasis to the concept of the divine origin of this water. St. John will refer to, the, to how the faithful have access to this water in Revelation 22 verse 17. An Old Testament precedent is Ezekiel's vision of the new city and new temple in Ezekiel 40 to 47. In Ezekiel 47 verses 1 to 12, the prophet wrote of abundant water with its source at the temple. Here is verse 1 from that group of verses. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Raised in the Hebrew cultural and religious traditions of the Old Testament, St. John would have known of the symbolic uses of water in the temple celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. The ritual required the priest to draw water from the pool of Siloam, 
symbolic of life-saving water from the rock during the flight from Egypt, and carry it in a golden vessel seven times around the temple altar, imitating these seven walks around Jericho, and then pour it on the altar as an offering. A New Testament precedent is found in St. John's own account of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in 29 AD. The authors of the New King James Study Bible, Version Study Bible, speculate that it was after the seventh walk around the altar that Jesus said, as reported by St. John in John 7, 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus' Old Testament citation in that quotation is a combination of the Septuagint or Greek Old Testament version of Isaiah 12, verse 3, which is written in the New King James translation as, Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And also from Isaiah 43:20, also from the New King James, because I give water in the waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In verse 1b, the throne of God and the Lamb, described as the source from which the water flows, is a foundation for the Anglican understanding of procession by the great Anglican bishop and scholar Lancelot Andrews, who wrote that all things flow from the Father through the Son when the faithful are in the Spirit. That latter, in the Spirit, is a t term St. John himself used in Revelation 1.10, 4.2, 17.3, and 21.10. The Nicene Creed defines the Holy Spirit as the giver of life. If you'd like to know more about Lancelot Andrews and the whole subject of procession, see pages 14 to 17 in Christian Spirituality, an Anglican perspective available at www.amazon.com right slash author right slash Ronald hyphen E hyphen Shibley. The tree of life in verse 2 recalls the tree of life in the midst of the garden from Genesis 2 verse 9. The number of fruits on the tree is the mystical number 12, which St. John has already explained in his description of the 12 gates and 12 foundations of the wall of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, verses 12 and 14, is symbolic of both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The leaves of the tree of life provide healing, much as the trees on the water of life do in Ezekiel 47, verse 12. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. St. John will use the same phrase again in Revelation, verse 14. The words no more curse in verse 3 has both Old Testament and New Testament precedent. The Old Testament precedent is Genesis 3.16, the pain of childbirth as punishment of Eve and all women thereafter for the disobedience of, Adam, of, of Eve, discussed in the introduction to Revelation 12 and the commentary specifically on Revelation 12.2 and the discussion of the Christian understanding 
of the relationship between the serpent in the creation account and Satan in my commentary on Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. The New Testament precedent is the allusion to the same shame of mankind for the crucifixion of the Son of God. The verse's spiritual meaning is that paradise has been restored to its status before Adam and Eve's disobedience in eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, recounted in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15. Reflecting this understanding, the Orthodox Study Bible New Testament and Psalms gives Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, the subtitle, Paradise Regained. Servants shall serve him, in verse 3b, will be discussed later in the discussion of verse 9. In verse 4, the Old Testament prohibition to Moses in Exodus 33.20, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live, has been lifted. Based on John 14, verse 9b, Christians believe that the face of God can be seen in the face of Jesus Christ, who said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? For an extended discussion of how Christians can see the face of the invisible God, see Part 2 of Christian Spirituality, an Anglican perspective with the, at the address cited just moments ago. In verse 4b, St. John reveals that the faithful are now permitted not only to see the face of God, but also to wear the name of the Father and Son on their foreheads. Among the Old Testament precedents is the legend, Holiness to the Lord, worn on an engraved plate carried on a blue cord, hung from the turban so that it hung down on the temple high priest's forehead. See the details in Exodus 28, verses 36 to 39, and Exodus 39, verse 30. A second Old Testament precedent presents the legend as a protection offered by the faithful against the day when the Lord would exact vengeance on the wicked in the holy city. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done within it. This image is the exact opposite of the beast with the blasphemous name on its head, in Revelation 13, verse 1. The phrase marked refers to the placement of the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, which in Ezekiel's time looked like an X. This concept is still used today when someone not literate may make his mark, or an X, on a document witnessed by someone else. In the Christian tradition, making the sign of the cross on the forehead and chest is a way of placing the mark of God on the faithful in three ways. First, as an honor, as in the head plate on Aaron. Second, as an announcement to the world. And finally, as a protection against the assaults of Satan. In verse 5a, there shall be no light there, no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. St. John returns for the third time to the lack of light 
or the sun or the moon in the New Jerusalem. He had made the same point in Revelation 21, 9 to 13, 21, 23, in the context of created and verse, versus uncreated light. The New Jerusalem is illuminated by uncreated light, that is, the same light which illuminated the world on the first day before the sun and the moon were created on the fourth day. See Genesis 1, 3, 4, 5, and 14 to 19. The phrase, the Lord God gives them light, means that the light which illumines the New Jerusalem is Jesus Christ, who declared himself to be the light of the world in John 8, 12. In verse 5b, and they shall reign forever and ever, has the same meaning as the declaration, his kingdom shall have no end in the Nicene Creed. As I noted in earlier episodes, that phrase was added at the Council of Constantinople in 381 to answer the heresy of millennialists in the context of a thousand years in Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. The second reading from chapter 22 is verses 6 through 13. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is unrighteous, let him be unrighteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Continuing his practice of bringing back phrases used earlier in Revelation, in verse 6a, St. John brings back faithful and true for the fifth time. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus is the faithful witness. In Revelation 3.14, he is faithful and true. In Revelation 19.11 and 25, he is true and faithful. In Revelation 22, verse 6a, it is his word which is described as faithful and true, which was implied in the first verse of Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 1. St. John is among those counted as his servants, to whom this truth is to be revealed. The divine declaration in verse 6a that these words, meaning St. John's account of his visions and instructions in the book of Revelation, are faithful and true, is related to the instruction to St. John from the one on the throne in Revelation 20, verse 5, Write, 
for these words are faithful, are true and faithful. As I noted in the discussion of Revelation 20, verse 5, if the one who speaks is the faithful witness, and he is either faithful and true or true and faithful, then by definition the words of instruction he speaks are true and faithful. A fundamental concept of Christian theology is that Scripture, including Revelation, is the true and faithful Word of God. The references in verse 6b to John as a faithful servant and the revelation of events which must shortly take place will be discussed in the context of verse 7 below. In verse 6b, St. John uses one of the Hebrew names of God, Lord God, which just for this slide is written in the English prayer book style with L-O-R-D in small caps. This indicates that it is not just a word, but a title of God. The name of God in Hebrew was Adonai, which is rendered as Kyrios in both Greek and Latin. In verse 6b, that name is associated with the holy prophets. A prophet is one who is divinely inspired to speak or write the word of God. These include both the prophetic speakers in the Old Testament histories, as well as the writing prophets, whether major or minor, from Isaiah to Malachi. In the Christian tradition, St. John the Baptist enjoys the unique honorary title, Last Prophet of the Old Testament. In verse 6a, the angel speaks to St. John a prophecy which might also be called a warning. Behold, I am coming quickly. In the Gospels, Jesus told the apostles that even he did not know the timing of his coming again that only the Father knew, saying in Matthew 24, verses 36 and 37, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The phrase coming quickly and its variant shortly to take place is used many times in Revelation, including in the first verse of the first chapter, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. The implication then, and earlier in verse 6b, is that St. John is counted among the faithful servants, as will be shown more clearly in the discussion of verses 8 and 9. Both coming quickly and shortly take place are references to end times, the study of which is called eschatology. St. Paul counseled his pupil Titus in Titus 2, 11 to 14, included this in his advice, to always, to be always, quote, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then infill words, who would, and goes on, redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. St. Peter wrote of the same expectation in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 14, including this, looking for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, and the infilled word we look for new heavens and a new earth in which 
righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. St. John made especially clear in Revelation 1, 1 to 3, 7 and 8 and 19 that the coming of judgment or day of the Lord in both Old and New Testament was to be the underlying theme of the book of Revelation. Examples of many forms of preparation for judgment were revealed in John's account in the first six trumpets in Revelation 8.1 through the turning point verse, Revelation 11.15, in which St. John says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. After that turning point verse, the narrative shifted to detailed examples of judgment, beginning with the conflict between the woman, the child, and the dragon, and continuing with the celestial war led by St. Michael the archangel, the account of the bowls of the wrath of God, the discussion of the victory of the armies of the Lamb, and the defeat of the harlot of Babylon and her beast and their followers the defeat of the beast and the false prophet, the casting of Satan and his followers into the bottomless pit, and finally, the casting of death and Hades and anyone not written in the book of life into the lake of fire. In St. John's lifetime, the expectation that these end times would be during their lifetime was expressed in the Greek word parousia or parousia, in the Greek New Testament version of Revelation, the Greek words Jesus speaks in Revelation, Revelation 22.7, I am coming quickly, are erkomai taku. Taku, many people believe, would be better translated as suddenly. A New Testament precedent is Matthew 24, verse 44, in which Jesus warns, therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The traditional Christian doctrine is that the second coming is always imminent, or it could come at any time and one should always be ready, as St. Peter pointed out in 2 Peter 3.14. This imminence of judgment will be discussed again later in this chapter. In verse 7b, the voice of Christ speaks the sixth beatitude and twelfth song in Revelation. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Scholars have noted the symmetry of St. John's placement of the first beatitude for readers of Revelation in chapter 1, spoken by St. John, and this one in chapter 22, verse 7b, spoken by Christ in the last chapter of Revelation. And there is one more beatitude spoken by John in verse 14. In verses 8 and 9, for the second time, St. John, intent upon worship, falls down at the feet of the angel, and for the second time he is rebuked, and in the same words as in the first occasion, Revelation 19.10, see that you do not do that. The angel for the second time 
includes St. John in the category of servant, explaining, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The Old Testament precedent is Exodus 20, verse 1 through 6, in which the first commandment is to worship God only. The Christian understanding is that objects, including icons, crosses, prayer beads, and people, including priests, bishops, archbishops, or even the Blessed Mary, may be venerated but not worshipped. Where in Revelation 10.4, the seven thunders, St. John is admonished not to write or to seal up, repeating the instructions to Daniel in Revelation 20.10a, he is commanded to do the opposite. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Another reference to the concept of the imminence of the second coming. In Revelation 1, verse 19, St. John received nearly the same positive command. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. In verse 10, he has already seen these things and heard further instructions. The command, write the things which you have seen, may also have been inspiration to St. John to write his gospel, which was prepared in the years immediately following his release from imprisonment on Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. In verse 10b, the time is at hand, is another indication of the expectation of judgment in the near future. Verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still, he who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Has been open to a wide variety of interpretations, depending upon whether the reader is looking for the literal or the spiritual meaning. Is it a literal acknowledgement that some will always defer to the Lord? Or is it a spiritual reminder that the door Jesus mentions in Revelation 3.20, the letter to the church at Laodicea, remains open to the repentant? The illustration is The Light of the World, a mid-19th century oil on canvas by William Holman Hunt, showing Jesus at the door, waiting. Note that the only handle to the door is on the inside, signifying that only he can open it. The idealist believers accept the spiritual interpretation for which there are at least three precedents in the Old Testament and one in the New. In Isaiah's vision of the throne of God, when God asks, Who shall I send? Isaiah answers, Here I am, send me, in Isaiah 6, 8. Then the Lord instructs Isaiah, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. That's Isaiah 6, verse 10. The prophet Ezekiel, faced with a similar problem, asked God for advice, and God replied, But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who has ears, let him hear. He who refuses, let him refuse. 
for they are a rebellious house, from Ezekiel 3.27, which is another way of saying the door is always open. Finally, there is this from Daniel 12.10, Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. A New Testament precedent for the spiritual-minded interpretation is the parable of the sower, in which Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6-9. In the parable, the seed is the word of God, some of which will die for lack of water, some of which will be trampled, some will fall on rock and die for lack of nutrient, some of which will bear fruit but will not live to maturity. But Jesus explains that, quote, the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. That's Luke 8, verse 15. A possible answer to the interpretation of verse 11 is found in verse 12, in which coming quickly is used again. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Here the reward is not exclusively the modern expectation of a positive outcome. It implies the possibility of a negative result as well. That is, each judged according to his work, in which judgment the filthy will be judged as filthy, and the righteous and holy will be judged righteous and holy. In verse 13, St. John brings back for the fourth time the Greek words Alpha and Omega. Here, as in Revolution, Revelation 1.11, the declaration is found in its broadest form, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. These words are symmetrically placed in the first, Alpha, and last, Omega, chapters of Revelation, reinforcing the Christian traditional understanding of Jesus as Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. For language purists, the English pronounce Omega with a short E, putting the emphasis on the final vowel, so it's Omega. I discussed 12 examples of the I Am declarations in the Gospel of St. John in episodes 29 through 35 in the Bible study series available on our website. The third reading from chapter 22 is verses 14 through 17. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Verse 14 is the seventh and last beatitude in Revelation. It declares as blessed those who live by his commandments and grants rewards, access 
to the tree of life with twelve fruits and healing leaves from Revelation 22, verse 2, and the right to enter the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which came down from heaven. In verse 15, we read of those unclean things which are forever prohibited from entering the city, dogs, sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and liars. The concept of unclean things kept outside the gate has a long history in the Hebrew tradition, including preparation of meats for use on the altar, burials, and such acts as crucifixion. A likely Old Testament precedent reflecting this dislike of dogs is Proverbs 26.11, a dog returns to his own vomit. A New Testament precedent is Philippians 3.2, beware of dogs, a linking of dogs considered unclean scavengers with the wicked. In verse 16, the lineage of Jesus is broadened from earlier claims by St. John himself and by Jesus in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and in Revelation 22, 13. St. John again uses the Greek ego ime that is unique to the writings of St. John, saying, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Again, the web address for the AIC Bible study series on the I Am sayings uh, can be found at, at our website, www.anglicaninternetchurch.net, and also a shorter version is available in layman's lexicon at www.amazon.com, right slash author, right slash Ronald hyphen E hyphen Shibley. The Old Testament precedent for the I Am declarations of is God's answer to the question raised by Moses concerning what he should tell the people, I am the existing one, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the existing one sent me. That's Exodus 3, 14 and 15 in the SAAS text. In the Hebrew text, the phrase is Aa asher Aa, for which the Greek equivalent as, as noted, ego ime. The Old Testament precedent for root and offspring of David are two prophecies of Isaiah concerning the one who was to come in the line of Jesse, whose son David was king. In Isaiah 11:1, 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. This one is called Oradix Jesse, or root of Jesse, in the great O antiphon service for the final seven days of Advent. The second Old Testament precedent, also from the Great O Antiphon service, is from Isaiah 22, verse 22. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. This verse is called O Clavis David, or Key of David. The key of David is a symbol of authority, literally the authority of King David, and ultimately to Jesus Christ, born in the line of David, consistent with the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, verses 23 to 38. The final name, Bright and Morning Star, has several New Testament precedents, including Revelation 2:28, the letter to the church at Thyatira, I will give him the morning star. And this from the Benedictus, or Song of Zacharias, which includes reference to the Savior to come as a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, 
the day spring from on high who gives light to them who sit in darkness. From Luke 1, verses 69, 78, and 79. The third precedent is St. Peter's reference to Jesus as the day star who illuminates the hearts of men in 2 Peter 1, 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. In the great O Antiphon service, the fifth Antiphon, O Orions, or O Dayspring, refers to the brightness of the light everlasting, inspired by the I am the light of the world declaration in John 8, 12. In verse 17, both the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, and the divine third person of the Holy Trinity, and the Bride, meaning Christ, issue an invitation, Come, and those who hear and those who thirst. The meaning, understood as a liturgical invitation, may be lost to those in denominations or parishes which no longer use morning prayer, which includes the invitatory antiphon, Vinite Exaltimus Domino, based on Psalm 95, 1-7, and Psalm 96, 9-13. and 13. In the 1928 prayer book text, the first and sixth verses are, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. O come, let us worship and fall down and kneel before the Lord our Maker. In the Eastern Church and in many Roman Catholic parishes, using the pre-1979 Latin liturgy, the Holy Eucharist service begins with the invitation, O come, let us pray in peace to the Lord. In Revelation 22, verse 16, and by extension in morning prayer and Holy Eucharist worship, it is an open invitation to, as said in Revelation 22, 1, him who thirsts to partake of the water of life. As used in Revelation 22.17 and again in Revelation 22.20, it is one of only three times in the New Testament, along with 1 Corinthians 16.22, in which the faithful openly call for the second coming and the day of judgment. I reserve detailed discussion in for verse 20 below. This invitation to him who hears in verse 17 plays upon the many references in the Old Testament, including Ezekiel 3.27, quoted earlier, and in the New Testament, concerning he who has ears to hear, let him hear in the letters to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and he who has ears, let him hear in Jesus' invitation in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, verses 3 to 9. St. John is acknowledging in verse 17, as he did in verse 11, the Christian doctrine that all are invited, but not all will come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This is the final invitation in Revelation and by the inclusion of whoever desires, suggests an invitation both for the long-time faithful and the recently repentant 
to take of the water of life in Revelation 22.1. The final reading from chapter 22 and on this whole series is 18 to 21, which is a form of epilogue to the entire book. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Eastern Church scholars believe that it was Jesus' intention spoken through St. John in his role as prophet and seer that the book of Revelation should be read aloud in the seven churches of Asia Minor. In the Western Church tradition, excuse me, I skipped a line. It is only the seven letters that are viewed in that way. Although many demonstrate denominations use some of the songs in Revelation, even more recite, uh, cite passages concerning the judgment by fire from chapter 20 and 21. No major Christian denomination, either Eastern or Western, now actually incorporates Revelation into its liturgical reading cycle, but verses are used in songs and in burial rites. The narrative verse changes at this end, where it was Jesus himself and the Spirit speaking the invitation, come, come, in verse 17, the voice in verses 18 to 21, except when he is quoting Jesus in verse 20a, is now St. John's. He begins with a stern warning to anyone who adds anything to the book or takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy. An Old Testament precedent is God's instruction to the Hebrew people in Deuteronomy 4, 2a, before their crossing into Canaan, the promised land, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. The penalties in verse 18a for adding to the book range from the plagues described earlier in Revelation and in verse 19 to the removal of one's name from the book of life and removal of the right to enter the new Jerusalem, the new holy city, and the loss of, quote, things written in this book, meaning access into the new kingdom and the water of life offered in Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. So who did John mean here? Who would have been likely to add to or take from the book? The likely answer is that John, who in his service as Bishop of Ephesus faced strong opposition from the group known as the Gnostics, may have been thinking of them because they had been the source of so much heresy in his lifetime. It echoes the threat of punishment or being accursed issued by St. Paul in Galatians 1.8.9 to those who teach false gospels. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Accursed is a Western church translation of the Greek anathema, 
which does not mean cursed in the modern sense, but that the one who expresses such views is outside the community of the church universal. In verse 20a, the voice changes again, and it is Jesus who speaks, saying, Surely I am coming quickly. Adding this line at the end of the book reinforces the statements earlier in Revelation, especially 22 verses 7 and 12, that the second coming is imminent. And one should keep in mind that, as Jesus said in Matthew 24 verses 36 and 37, only the Father knows the when. St. John Chrysostom, the patron saint of the Anglican Internet Church, wrote in the late 4th century that not only do we not know the when, but that it is unwise spiritually to engage in speculation on the subject. It was his opinion, as it is of the AIC, that the better course is to live a life always ready for it whenever it comes. Verse 20b in verse 20b, the narrative voice changes back to John the seer, who speaks the Amen and a renewed invitation. Amen, even so. Even so means he is not using Amen in its traditional sense, no more to be said. And he issues an invitation, come Lord Jesus, which has the same meaning as the Greek Maranatha in 1 Corinthians 6.22, O Lord, come in the New King James text, untranslated in the King James Version. Spoken in this way, whether Maranatha or Erkomai, it is an invitation to the day of divine judgment. According to many scholars, based on the Didache, a first century book of prayers, Maranatha was used in the same way in early church liturgies. Revelation comes to a close in verse 21, with this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. While you all may originally have meant the members of the seven churches in Asia Minor, when it was read there, St. John's benediction has been widely used since the first century in Christian worship. I thank you for joining me for these 28 episodes in which I hope I have demonstrated the depth and breadth of St. John's knowledge of Hebrew and Christian literature, both canonical and non-canonical, history and understanding of numerology, his very formidable talents as a theologian, a dramatist, and a poet, and finally his influence on traditional Christian doctrine concerning the second coming and the general judgment. I also hope that you have enjoyed having access to the collection of icons, mosaics, paintings, drawings, sketches, and illuminated manuscripts, most especially the Bamberg Apocalypse and the Sansever Beatus. In 2016 AD, the Anglican Internet Church will publish a full-color book with illustrations based on the text of these videos. The book will include a glossary of terms, a general index, and a scripture index, and the book will be available at www.amazon.com right slash author right slash Ronald hyphen E hyphen Shibley. Thank you again for joining me for Revelation and Idealist Interpretation. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.
This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church, and we invite you to visit its website and make use of its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.